and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays and the run towards a habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in marine science, conservation and storytelling to talk all things sharks and the oceans. Wherever you're listening from today, I hope you're well and enjoying the holidays however it is that you celebrate them. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to mention a few things podcast related. So firstly, our next episode will be out next Thursday on the 29th and it will be our 30th episode. How mad is that? And also our last of season three. We wanted to end the season at the very end of 2022 and it will be with our very own CEO, Dr. James Lee and content manager, Jade Schultz. We'll be looking at everything that has happened this year for sharks, including the monumental breakthrough that happened at CITES just a couple of weeks ago. And following that, we'll be taking a little break in January as we prepare season four for you. Secondly, we do have an exciting announcement about the future of the podcast. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere, but we are making some changes which you'll want to be aware of and we'll announce that in next week's episode. Okay, now that that's out of the way, on with today's show. It's an episode that I've wanted to do for quite a while now because it's a topic that is very close to what I do in my other life, my scientific life, which is working with and understanding local communities, particularly fishing communities. We know that overfishing is driving shark and ray declines globally, but fishing is also a livelihood and a form of subsistence for many people. So while we do need regulations to protect sharks, we also need to protect the people who will be affected by these and engage them in shark and rear conservation in a way that is ethical, equitable and sustainable. That being said, working with people can also be difficult, it can be challenging and hugely complicated, especially when there is many, many different interests involved and a lot of mistrust between scientific inquiry and local or traditional knowledge. However, Local or traditional knowledge can also be highly valuable to shark conservation. In a lot of cases, we actually lack quite a lot of data on shark and ray species, on their status and how they're traded. And fishers are working with these species every single day and monitoring their movements. So we can learn quite a lot from them. And my two guests today know a lot about that. They are Dr. Nadia Rubio and Alifa Hock, two incredible researchers who have spent a lot of time in the field building trust and relationships with fishers and local communities to better understand what's happening to sharks in the area, get key data on shark numbers and distribution, and figure out barriers to local involvement in shark conservation. They talk in great detail about their research and the places they work in this episode, but I'll just give a quick overview of who they are and what they do. Nadia was awarded her PhD from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography and has spent the last 15 years as a marine ecologist studying a wide variety of subjects from turtles to whales. For her PhD, she used interdisciplinary data, including historical documents and interviews with fishers to understand coastal exploitation in the wetlands of North Mexico. She is now founder of More Sustainable, a non-profit organization that works to conserve marine life in Mexico's Caribbean waters. And she is also a Save Our Seas project leader. 
The project focuses on documenting local knowledge of sharks and other marine fauna and combining this with spatial data to understand the trajectory of marine biodiversity in Holbosch, Mexico. Alifa is also a Save Our Seas project leader and you might recognise her voice from one of our earlier episodes, Becoming Shark Scientists, which she was on with Jasmine Graham and Dr. Catherine MacDonald. If you haven't heard that episode, it's a really great one, which covers some very important topics. So I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. It was one of our earliest episodes. We were talking about slightly different things in that episode, but today Alifa is talking about her work in the coastal region of Bangladesh. Her project works with local fishers, conducting surveys and interviews to gain insight into the status and trade of critically endangered sawfishes and rhino rays. Through her PhD research, which she is currently completing at the University of Oxford, Alifa has built a lot of trust with fishes, which she is now using to bridge gaps between science, policy and local knowledge to help create sustainable conservation strategies for the species. As you'll discover in this episode, Nadia and Alifa are such inspirational people with just an incredible passion for the work they do and the people they work with. It was just such a lovely experience to have them both together, bouncing off each other and sharing their stories from the field. I am so excited for you to hear this episode, so without further ado, let's dive in. Hello, Nadia and Alifa, and welcome to the Whole Tooth podcast. Hi, thank you for having us. Hello, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Thank you both so much for coming on. I know you're both incredibly busy, as everyone is, especially with the run-up to the holidays. Alifa, you are in the Hamden stage for your PhD. Nadia, you've just got back from the field, so it's all go. Um, But we're so happy and lucky to have you on and talking about this topic which is something that we've touched on before in the podcast but not kind of in this way and not this detailed and I watched you both give your talks at Sharks International and I watched you both straight after each other and I was like you would be perfect for a podcast episode together so I am so excited to have you both on. To start us off I wondered if you could tell our listeners about the place in which the majority of your work is based at the moment and why this area is important for shark and rays. So Alifa, I'll come to you first. Thank you very much. It's it's um thank you for your compliments for the talks and Nadia's too. It's um it was a very, very good experience. My um work is basically based in Bangladesh, which is at the top of the Bay of Bengal. Um, which is a very interesting bay. It's um, extremely nutrient-rich because a lot of the freshwaters are coming down from Bangladesh, India, um, from from other countries within this bay, which is, um, for for that reason, not only because of uh, for the sharks and rays, but for many other marine species, it's it's an ideal habitat. So even within a very small area um, within the marine system, you would be finding thousands of species, um, fish, turtles, um, squids, crabs, shrimps, and whatnot. Um, in Bangladesh alone, we have more than 110 species of sharks and rays, um, both marine, coastal, and deep water species. So I would say because of the habitat and the position of this place, um, it is extremely important for sharks and rays. Another very important thing that we um, shouldn't forget is that um, 
because we are a coastal country, a lot of the people are depending on these fisheries, um, depending on marine resources as well. So um, it's an opportunity as well to be able to understand not only the fish, but the fisheries and fishers and how um, both can coexist in, in a in an important system so yeah absolutely and we will we'll talk all about that and of course as well one of the species that you work most closely with is the sawfish which is really exciting just because of the mystery around that animal so really cool so i'm really excited to get into that but nadia how about you where can you tell us a little bit about where you work yeah, so I work on Mexico. I'm from Mexico, and uh, Mexico is important for chondrichthyes fauna. It has uh, almost seventeen percent of the reported species worldwide, and uh, it's this is only preceded by Australia. And in the Caribbean region where I worked, um, about eighty-five species of Elasmo branch has been reported. And I work in the Caribbean part of Mexico, but I work on the islands. And so these islands have a historical a culture for for fishing since pre-Columbian times, but it's more recently that the culture has changed a lot because of tourism. These islands are just uh, becoming hotspots for sun and sand tourists that come from all over the world. And so a lot of things are changing um, besides um, the problem with overfishing and coastal exploitation, the culture is changing and a lot of traditions are being lost. And so we are in this uh, region with uh, a lot of diversity related to sharks and rays where a lot of anthropogenic threats are happening um, at a very fast phase in a very short period of time and they're changing everything, the species composition, the environment, the culture. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I think... That's something that is happening in in lots of places all around the world is that tourism is definitely changing the way that things are done and especially conservation wise as well. Um, So that's so fascinating. I'm I'm very excited to get into that. And also the just the sheer diversity, elasmobranch diversity that you have in the places that you work in is just mind blowing to me Um, and such beautiful, beautiful parts of the world as well. So we kind of kind of went into that a little bit there, um, but I just wanted to dive into your projects at the moment and sort of talk a little bit about what it is that you you do in the places that you're in. So Nadia, you were kind of just going into that. So I wondered if I could come to you first on that one. So one of the main projects that I have right now is on Holbox Island, which is the northest island in the Mexican Caribbean. And it's very small. And historically, it was a very tiny fishing town, which now also evolved into what I was saying, into a very uh, important spot for tourism from all over the world. And so what I've been doing there is studying coastal exploitation through time, mainly using Fisher's traditional knowledge. And so I I collect this kind of information, what were they fishing, who would go fishing, their tools for fishing. Um, and in doing these, I also interact with an interdisciplinary team that's not only working with traditional knowledge, I interact with geographers, geologists, uh, archaeologists. So we try to make this description, qualitative description of coastal exploitation through time. That is mainly my work. And because I have a passion for environmental education, for interacting with the people, with the town, we do develop a lot of activities related to environmental education with local 
we try to do it with local people and we try to do it also with broad audiences uh, online mm. Yeah, fa- fascinating. It's kind of like, because I remember watching your talk at Sharks International and I just thought it's so interesting because it's almost like you're kind of going back through time and finding all of these little jigsaw pieces and then putting together like a big picture of kind of what was happening with shark fishing like historically through time. I mean, I've been in the field of like social and political science for a wee while now, but I've kind of, I'd never seen that done before so it was it was really really fascinating to discover your work and Alifa of course you work with fishers as well can you tell us a little bit about uh, your research and your current project at the moment? Yeah sure I mean and I think what Nadia just had said it, it creates the perfect platform for what I it, it's quite similar what what she has been doing we we started like that as well um, a little bit of a background how our work started. So when I started working with Sharks and Rays at the beginning, we did not have a lot of baseline to work with. So not a lot of academic papers or even um, gray literature, um, as if not a lot of people were taking interest in, in this certain group of animals. Um, so you had to start almost at the very beginning. Um, and that was very difficult because I had a very small team. And, and then, if I be honest, I, we didn't know where to start. So the most easiest and and now i think the most important way of starting was to be able to talk to the people who have a like a cumulative experience of thousands of years with these animals um within the sea not only in the landing sites or or what we see mostly dead sharks and rays but with live animals as well and and that's how everything started we started talking with these coastal people and um fishers throughout the with the coast of Bangladesh and um, in one of my experience um, so in it's, it's a very interesting story so we were talking about all species of sharks and rays and then this trader came with a huge saw of a sawfish rostrum which was as tall as me and then um, I was surprised because we thought that we do not have sawfishes left anymore within our coastal region and it was a freshly caught sawfish rostrum and, and he told us the story about well we normally get a sawfish every month or the other, but it's really expensive. So you wouldn't see it in the formal landing sites. So by the um, by the virtue of this very interesting way of talking to people, which is a qualitative study, we got to know something that probably we wouldn't be able to discover in a landing site or even on a boat. And that's how our project started. So we then started to, um, you know, um, systematically start talking to many, as many fishers and traders possible in the remote rivers, um, uh, riverine villages and islands within the Shundarbans, which is the mangrove forest um, and, and a very important habitat for sawfishes. And then we found out that it is impossible for someone to actually record this species if you do not have a relationship with these people, because these species do not land in the normal landing sites. So we created this um, fishers um, involved network, which was a very simple cell phone generated network, whereby even if um, there is a fish, a, a sawfish is landed somewhere or being caught, they would give us the information through the phone. Um, and, and using this network, we kind of... Um, found so many sawfishes that were being caught actually and there's a possible viable population of large sawfish within our waters um, and then it's while mainstreaming this local ecological knowledge into science to understand how population would look where the species are where the habitats are where the most important conservation work should go 
we kind of also found out that well it, it can't we can't really stop in documenting the decline because what we were doing back then in 2015-16 um we were just documenting what what's being ca um, caught and that was important but then again we were not really saving the species right and we kind of found out that then we need to understand this this social and ecological and economic barriers of this fishers um for for be you know for being able to um release us official life, being able to adhere to conservation um, regulations. And, and that's where our current project started. Um, we engaged with a lot of um, fishers, workshops. We did a lot of workshops with them, with traders, with consumers, trying to understand um, what would help, which is culturally appropriate for these people to be able to adhere to any conservation action. Um, and by doing that, we are also trying um, to put into a lot of actions based on this research. And we have kind of uh, had this, um, our first live release of a sawfish within Bangladesh. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And this is exactly why I want to get the both of you on, because I think that when we're talking about sharks and shark science and conservation, a lot of people forget that there is very much a very important human element to a lot of these things, especially when it comes to, to fisheries and fishing. Um, and I feel like I mean, I, I was kind of similar to both of you in that I came from a biological sciences background. And then I actually fell into the world of social and political science through necessity because you kind of realizing that you need to work with the people who are who are working with these animals or trying to find these animals on a daily basis even just to know sort of where they are and what their behaviors are doing it's a bigger part of you know shark science and conservation than people or just conservation in general than people first imagine when they when they go to university if that makes sense um i don't know if you'd agree with me but um Nadia, how about you? How did you kind of get into sort of doing what you're doing now and working with people? Was there ever a point, like um, Alifa just said, where you're kind of like, oh, I really need to start working with these people now? Yeah, so it was during my PhD. It was an interdisciplinary PhD at Scripps Institution of Oceanography that they gave you the option to do a project where you have to choose different disciplines that you were interested in developing that. But many, many years earlier, uh, as, an, as a very young marine biologist, before working with sharks, I worked with uh, whales, uh, with uh, sperm whales and with gray whales. And that's, I'm talking about like 20 years ago. And so when I did one of my first field trips with gray whales, um, ecotourism in that region, which was in Baja, which is, was just beginning. And that was my first encounter with the fishing community that was trying to organize to become uh, eco to, to, to turn into ecotourism activities with gray whales. That's like 20 years ago. And that was the first time I met a group of fishermen and I was just um, enchanted by them, like by their, their ways, their culture. I really liked that. But at the time I was just very focused on whale ecology and I was just, uh, I don't know, I just thought it was very interesting and it was some subject I would like to explore sometime. And, and then I kind of put that in the back of my head, forgot about it. And then, I don't know, 15 years went by and I went to grad school. And in grad school, I, I saw this opportunity. At that time when I was in grad school, there was this big uh, 
this all these uh, ideas that we have now about interdisciplinary work and local ecological knowledge, traditional knowledge about kind of almost eight to ten years ago, they were starting to bloom, right? So it was this new new line of research that, that, that it was interesting to develop. And, and there is where I, when I was in my under, in, well, in graduate school, when I said, okay, I think I want to do a project with um, fishers and coastal exploitation. And so I started with, um, with Jeremy Jackson, Jackson. So he's like very important in, in all these world of coastal exploitation and understanding the past to get an idea of the present. And so with, with him, I had this opportunity to explore that part. That is how I got caught into humans and, and nature. And, and then, and that was in the Pacific side of Mexico in, in this very big wetland called Marismas Nacionales where I did my PhD. And after that, I, I wanted to explore other sites in Mexico and I wanted to go to the Caribbean. Um, my friends uh, that are the archaeologist team, team that I work with, they told me, oh, we're, we have been exploring for several years this Mayan archaeological site and there's an island in front of it. And this island was Holbosch. Uh, you should, should come check it out. Maybe there you can do the kind of project that you want to do. So when I went there um, in late 2014, and when I saw Holbosch for the first time, and when I met the fisherman, I was just saying, oh, I, I need to do a project here. I didn't have any funding. I had just finished my PhD. I was very confused about where do you, did I wanted to go to leave. And you know, at that time, you're applying for jobs everywhere for postdocs or for whatever and I just had this feeling I want to work on this island I thought it was a very peculiar laboratory for these human interactions through time Nadia I know that you spend a lot of time before you go into the field to collect data for example getting to know the community first and their traditions um, before you actually kind of go into the, um, I mean, I know it's all data at the end of the day, but before you kind of specifically go out to collect data. So I wanted to know like, why is it important to you to do this before you actually conduct like surveys or, or interviews? It's a little bit of what Alifa already mentioned about getting to know the people, right? And um, getting an understanding of what's going on in the community. And just because um, I think it's, it, it also has to do with the personal relationship that, as, that you as a scientist are willing to have with your project and the amount of interest that you want to put on the people. Because there are people that are doing these kind of projects or, or that are documenting human perceptions, but they're still not willing to get involved in the community, to understand what's going there, to understand the threats, to understand their concerns, to hear their voice. I do have a personal interest on these, on getting immersed in the community and knowing their problems, uh, the circumstances, uh, all these, all these uh, more personal things that do need to be addressed. I understand it's a scientific project, but um, you know the 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 very known story with the fishermen, they would say, oh yeah, a lot of biologists come here and they ask us questions. They leave, they never come back. We, we never know who they are. And, and they keep asking the same question again and again, and we keep responding that. And so that's it. And so I, I've encountered that in the field a lot, but uh, just because I've been, for example, in Holbosch, I've been working for seven years. 
So I came back, right? It's, it's a different relationship I have with them. They know me. Um, we go back, we get information, but we also give back. And we, we get this, but we give it back. Like we do, you do have, I think as a scientist, as a professional, you have this, you need to have this responsibility and, commit, and commitment to go back. And that sometimes is not possible maybe because of the funding, but it also has to do with your personal interaction with the community. And I think there's still, there are still scientists that believe that fishermen are not saying the truth that believe they're lazy, that give them these other category in the social scale of unimportant. And, and this has to change too. Um, and, and regarding, it has to do with the policies as, as um, Alifa mentioned, like these policies to regulate humans. I mean, we are 8 billion people in the planet. This is not about the sharks, about the elephants, about the tigers. This is about us. And and we need to be conscious about it. And, and sometimes people that are very focused in the ecology or biology, it's hard, right? It's hard to get this, this grasp of, okay, let's, let's look around, let's go beyond the, the animal, beyond the species or whatever, uh, or beyond the ecological system. Um, because we cannot disconnect now. We, we are a, a billion using natural resources that we need it, we need the water, we need the air, uh, we need the food from the ocean. I mean, we cannot be disconnected and, and it's still not, it's not seen as that. Yeah, such like fantastic points. You're articulating it perfectly. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's one of the, because it goes way back, right, to, to how we're trained as scientists. We're always trained to be objective, non-emotional, all of which kind of goes against what human beings do. And obviously when you go into the field with that sort of preconceived notion of how someone thinks and how someone is going to act, you're never going to get the the sort of rich and the data that you need, right? Because that person's just going to immediately shut down because they can sense that from you. Um, and it, yeah, like you said, it's absolutely a two-way street. It's not just the fact of you're seeing someone as someone to get data from. You obviously, you need to give something back to them for their involvement because they're giving up their time, they're giving up their knowledge. Um, it's such an important thing to do um but me and my colleagues have talked about this quite a lot because we work in we work in conflicts conflict management conflict resolution um and these are all the things that can cause conflicts to escalate because a lot of these people you know scientists on the one hand scientists mistrust traditional knowledge and local knowledge but then that's the other way around as well so they can mistrust science and scientists and sort of what we do and how we're going to use their data and manipulate it um but a lot of us say that none of us when we were going through university were trained in how to speak to people in the field and how to you know do this kind of thing um and it's it's an art form it's you know it takes like you said it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of practice like like both of you said and sometimes it can be quite hard because you're being confronted with things that maybe personally you don't agree with or are quite difficult to see or difficult to hear um especially when we're talking about things like hunting or fishing it can be very very different yeah and if i may just add a little bit with um nadia i mean it just struck me so much when i mean if if anybody thinks that a fisherman is lazy or doesn't have as much a social wisdom i mean it's the absolute opposite it's i mean we have a nine to five job 
these people have a 24-7 job. And in, in places like ours, they go out for fishing for days without a communication device sometimes, so without any safety net. For such a small amount of earning that we, we can't even imagine that to be socially right. So absolutely in the contrary. For me, it's not only for the project to be successful, but even for being socially and morally just. It's absolutely important that you go without a preconceived notion. Um, to meet with these people and talk to with these people. Don't have any notion that you don't know or if you have heard for someone else. Have the same respect you would have for your colleague. I mean, imagine how would you respect your professor in a meeting? Do the same with a fisher. I mean, it's not different. You're asking questions to both these people. You can't think of these people as... Um, when you kind of create that balanced playing field, whereby that particular fisher also understands that the respect you get from this person is also being... Um, reciprocated. Somehow it's been, um, you know, given back as, as um, Nandi was saying. It's then the real conversation starts. Then the person actually opens up to you with, with their problems, with their knowledge, with their understanding. Give enough time while you're doing it. Don't think that you will be able to be finished with an interview in an hour if you think that's much, how much time you have. Don't, don't rush this. Um, and, the, and the most important thing is, um, as I said, it's it's a certain sort of, a, I don't know if I'm articulating it very right, but it has to be extremely respectful, even if you do not understand that certain culture, if it, even if it goes, um, you know, against what you have been believing so far in terms of social norms and everything, give time to be able to understand that some of this culture, some of these norms are going to be absolutely different from yours and sometimes conflicting as well. Um, it's as a person... To be able to to have that very meaningful conversation, you need to come to this place whereby you're able to have this mutual respect. So this is extremely important to yeah to, to be able to do this. I just wanted to add a little bit to that that also being a, a woman at the field with fishermen, that's also hard because uh, I don't know how it's in Bangladesh, but in Mexico a lot of fishermen think that it's bad luck if you take women to the sea with you. So they wouldn't, like, if you tell them, oh, can, can I go fishing with you? Would you teach me? A lot of them would say, oh, it's bad luck, you know, you don't put a woman in a boat. A lot of them, but a lot of them know, because I've got, like, opposite experience with a, a very old fisherman that's, like, my father of the sea, and he we would go fishing together, and we would do a lot of things, and he's a very old fisherman, so he doesn't have this belief. But that is a challenge to us, a woman, um, being accepted, right? You you have to play the game somehow in a professional way, right? But but that's also a challenge. Once you go through that through that barrier of being able to be accepted professionally as, as someone, they they really take care of you. Like they really value, they really share the information. They would. Uh, I have fishermen that would call me right on my cell phone, like, hey, we saw these, we saw, we thought about you, and and so. But yeah, it takes the time. But as a woman, it does have a, um, a different perspective for them. So, so, but that also applies to the, to the scientific community, which a lot of scientists are also very machistas. And so they're like, oh, what is this women doing at the field with the fishermen? I don't know if I should bring it up or not, but it's true. I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's true, right? And then finally you are able to publish your paper and then everyone just doesn't say anything. But... But it, it comes into these um, 
into this situation is a it's it's a very multifactorial way to make this type of project successful it's not only about the fun thing it's about all this cultural world culture that we have yeah no absolutely talk about it we talk about this on we've talked about this on the podcast before but like yeah i i mean i've definitely experienced that in both in the field and in science and alifa i know i know that you have as well especially with the fishers you've had the very similar experience to nadia right absolutely i mean but then again the most interesting part was that um that given time the same fishers were the most open to me as well as nadia was just talking about they would call you whatsapp you with <laughs> shark photo i've i've seen these have you seen these why aren't you here for my phd i couldn't be in the field for the long like six months in a row which is very unlike me in those six months my mom hasn't called me this times over whatsapp how many times different fishers did like hey we have seen this but you're not there in this um in this place and stuff like that so this these are also little wins i would say i'm sure nadia feels the same when when you get such a call with with something which probably not even important for your project but then again this relationship that you have built you have to go about the right way to be able to um change bring change in in bits and pieces like in in little bits at a time and that that's possible that's what i have seen in with my fishers in in bangladesh that a lot has changed that how they behave and stuff like that um at the beginning as as nadia was talking about like for me it was me and a very junior colleague of mine we she was just um a grad student and i've just passed my post grad a masters and we used to be in the coastal areas of bangladesh without a research question or a funding just being able to um sit there ha- has changed a lot for us in terms of acceptance in terms of how we look at research questions now even in terms of how i narrate my problems so the very like in 2015 the problem i was narrating about sharks and rays was only about sharks and rays hey this much is being caught this is a problem depletion extinction and all that but now how i narrate the problem has also been um change and i hope for the better um through these experiences as well so it's it's yeah i mean i it's there there's going to be challenging challenges everywhere you go i mean i don't think there is any any line of work there wouldn't be a challenge the the thing is that um you need to well, we need to find out a way either you can decide that i am going to work in this line and change this problem for better or you can just be conflicted all the time that hey this is a problem this is a problem and this is a challenge um i i i'd always suggest that let's take the first and see how that can be changed if change is needed at all so mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um i think these are such it's such a fascinating fascinating conversation i'm so glad that i brought you both both on to talk about this um i've often found too that people really enjoy being able to talk about themselves like once they've kind of learned to trust you a little bit they actually really enjoy it and then you do get people who are whatsapping you and calling you <laughs> wanting to wanting to do more um but yeah so how how do you both kind of go about even beginning to sort of build that we've kind of touched on it a little bit but but what does your process look like of how you start to interact with people in the field and start to sort of build those relationships like when you first when you first go because I, th- I think that can be quite an overwhelming step is how to sort of break in there in the first place so um so i take some days before doing the interviews right so when you go to a place you don't know very well you have an idea of your survey of the questions you want to do and then everything can change so you got to tailor it 
once you have some time to talk with the community. And so those first days are very interesting because I would go and look for the people I want to talk to, but it's not a formal interview. Once I met them, once we made some kind of, uh, we made a click, right? Then I would go back with all my books or my papers that I want them to respond, but, but not at the beginning. And a technique that has worked for me um, a lot in, in these places where I've been going back is that I take pictures to them. Uh, and they like that. Like if I'm interviewing them at the pier or at the coastal area, so I say, okay, let me take a picture with you both. Let me take a picture. And I print them out. I've been printing so many pictures. I've interviewed over 200 people throughout these years. And I print them out. I print them out every time. And and I would go back and then I would give them, I would give them and they would be like, oh, how much I owe you, these pictures are great. Or can you print me another one that's bigger for my family and things like that. And I would just do it. It's like part of the budget in my projects. That technique has worked pretty well for me um, and just being patient. And I really, I really like that. Like I really get inspired by their, by their, by their accounts of how the coastal waters were and the animals that were there. And and it was a hardship. There were no motors. There were not electricity. Um, there was, um, there was, the island was completely uncommunicated. There was no road. You could only get to the island by water and it has to be from the other state, from Yucatan. So it was a very different life. And people do not know, do not know that. And tourists are not very interested in that either. So that's really sad. Yeah, well, you, you must have you must have made like a, such an impression. They're obviously like really, you know, obviously really proud of the work that they do, and having evidence of that is really validating, I guess. Um, but Alifa, kind of similar questions to you. So first of all, sort of what does your process look like when you're trying to sort of build that trust and build those relationships with with people in the field yeah I mean it's it's always hard right and it seems um and if you're an introvert person by heart it's always like a challenge to be able to start that but once once you be able to you know break that wall um I think I became really talkative after conducting all the interviews that I have been doing so far but yeah that that's a personality change that I've seen in me but um it was very good I hope well um to be frank and very honest, I think um, there's a reason why people do not trust other people. Um, there can be other experiences. For example, there has been researches where it didn't um, came back to them in terms of what results were there, what data um, has been used and, and how their knowledge that has they have given the time to these people, how they have you know translated to be something. Um, it was never, it, it's not a practice for these people to see that. So there are, you know, historical experiences whereby these people were not taken very seriously by people like us who are, you know, calling ourselves as researchers or conservationists. So there is a reason why this, um, you know, the trust thing is a little difficult and in places, maybe not everywhere, but in places it's a little difficult. So our agenda was very um, clear. What we did was, we were absolutely transparent about what we were doing. Um, honesty was the, I think, um, was very important for us. So, for example, even before introducing us, um, we would, you know, say why we are um, having this conversation with these people, um, what 
would um, this answer? What sort of question we are asking and what would we do with these answers? Would it bring about a new ban? Would it bring about a new regulation? Would it bring about some change? Um, we were absolutely honest whenever we um, we said like, hey, listen, we don't know if, if this is going to bring about any change or not. We were just trying to understand what's happening. And if you're happy with that, we'll be able to, you know, voice this through your voices um, in, in a bigger platform, maybe in, in a, you know, in, 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 in with government officials, with, with policymakers and stuff like that. And we want to put your voices in these processes of policymaking and regulation. So transparency is absolutely important. If you can really um, make sure that the people that you are talking to and they believe that you are transparent and you're not here just for a regulation that would create more problems for them. It's always easier for them to talk. Um, and how we talk about these problems is also important to these people. You, How you narrate your problem to these people are going to also um, shape how they're going to answer to you, right? Um, if you if you start by something, hey, fishing is a problem um, because of fishing, this fish has gone down. A fisher is never going to talk to you. Why would they? But the same thing, if you say something like that, hey, we know that you're not being able to catch a lot of fish. It's a problem for the fishers too. Can we change this? Can we share our, you know, mutual um, knowledge with each other and can find something where the fish is also safe, but you are also safe as well so that your livelihood options are not, you know, just gone. So transparency, honesty, time, um, dissemination of what you have found, going back to them and arrange meetings, talk to them, give something back, what knowledge have been um, you have been producing by all those interviews. Uh, just to make things a little lighter, I think tea is a great um, conversation starter. Tea? Yeah, just, I mean, um, invite them or be invited into their homes, whatever is more easier for them. Um, and then just, um, you know, have, have a lively conversation, have some tea, some snacks. There is one thing in Bangladesh which um, older people have is called a Petal leaf. I don't know if you know, but it's it's kind of a leaf that people have, and that creates a, a certain kind of a color in your mouth if you have it. It's kind of a it's kind of a thing in Bangladesh, and and people love to offer you that. It's not tasty at all. It's it's really bad. But have that with those people. So, I mean, you know, being able to um, be a part of that culture is extremely important. So that's how we kind of um, we kind of approached it, and and it helped us. I was going to ask both of you about sort of the knowledge gaps that the fishers have helped you address and the people that you work with have helped you address because there's still that kind of stigma about traditional and local knowledge. And Nadia, just because you were sort of touching on it a little bit there, I wondered if you could tell us, you know, what your work or what the what the data that you've got from the fishers has helped, what kind of knowledge gaps has that helped you to um to fill essentially so so with this interdisciplinary science work we have been able to to generate this uh, qualitative description of the past of uh, big sharks that were very common in coastal waters and and this picture has changed um i mentioned this in in one of the talks at sharks international i mean what is uh, what is so relevant about it, and the thing that's so relevant about it is that um, even though like shark official uh, information related to shark catches in Mexico um, 
has has grown up like the catches the shark catches have increased they have increased with small species of sharks um with the sharks that are like a meter a meter and a half not not the big sharks not the not the tiger sharks the great hammerheads the bull sharks and so um we 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 are able to to do this and to describe it via all these interviews and via all this traditional knowledge and local ecological knowledge that we've been collecting through time, and 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 that gives a, a very different perspective of of the coastal area of, of what existed there, and it also gives a a perception of how human because the fishermen would tell you that but the fishermen are smart they would say. We worked on kind of destroying these, right? We worked on somehow over exploiting these through time, and and now we need to to make this change somehow. We need we need to to improve something. So they are aware somehow in in their in their in their own reality, right? Of of these changes and how these changes evolved into a negative uh, part of the ecosystem where we're losing the trout predators. And and I think uh, and it's hard because you need to to like really give a story to that qualitative information to make it serious, right? To make it rob robust, so it it makes a strong point. And I think there is where the interdisciplinary team is very helpful because I am a marine biologist, but I have a shark specialist that's member of the IUCN shark specialist group on the team. I have the archeologists that they've been working for over 10, 10 years on the archeological site near Holbush. I have the geographer, the geologist that is giving me um, an insight of how the landscape can, has changed because of construction of the hotels. So, so that is how the expertise of different people help you make a robust story of these, what people could just say, oh, it's a very qualitative description of things, right? Um, I think you, you as, a, as an interdisciplinary scientist really need to, to learn how to integrate that so that you can sell your story in a serious way. Um, um, just to just to give you a little bit of background uh, to the to the other question that you were saying that what sort of knowledge can be accurate from these interviews or even social work um, like uh, socio-ecological um, and qualitative work as well so far um, in Bangladesh we have interviewed more than in different um, projects and questions um, we have interviewed more than 3,000 fishers and ran over 30 um, workshops over four years of time and we have answered different questions which could have been also done going to the sea and mapping the area. So for example, diversity of species. There have been there there were species that we didn't see, Bangladesh had. We did as we didn't see, we couldn't record them, right? But there were fishers who were talking about species that they used to see, like the white spotted wedge fish, which is um which is critical endangered. We didn't think that Bangladesh had it, but the fishers mentioned that no, that we used to have it and we couldn't catch one since two thousand five. You should look for it, and then we went to you know historical data and and regional data, and we found out that species was present in Bangladesh. So stuff like that. Um, second habitat. So we kind of um created this um methodology whereby fishers identify where they fish using landmarks and grid maps, right? So. Using about 1,100 different interviews, we identified 
um, heat maps of where most of the fisheries are accumulating within the bay, which probably would have needed, I don't know, thousands of dollars going to the sea and then identifying where they're being fished. And when we used those maps against actual satellite data or habitat modeling data, they were exactly the same. So using Fisher's knowledge to identify habitats and fishing grounds are actually very good, uh, you know, frugal ways of doing um, those uh, those sort of very important and difficult research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I just wanted to go back to something that Nadia mentioned, and I know that you're working on as well, Alifa, which is the sort of, I think a lot of people would be surprised how many fishermen and how many local communities are actually open to the idea of conservation but there are obviously barriers to them engaging in conservation efforts and that's something that I know both of you have have looked at and Alifa I just want to come to you first because I know that that's something that your work with the fishers has allowed you to gain quite a comprehensive idea of so I wondered if you could just sort of give us a like an overview of what the main barriers that you have found kind of are? So we kind of given set of choices to fishers to, um, you know, kind of choose what would work better for them. So for example, would they want like a marine protected area or, you know, regulations or ban, or would they want like, you know, mix of both or would they want incentives and stuff like that. And that has given us access to a whole lot of things, um, understanding the mindset of these communities and, and how they approach regulations. And interestingly, we haven't found one fisher who said, no, we do not need any regulation. We just want to go and fish. Nobody actually talked about that. Everybody said, well, yes, we have experienced a steep decline of species, the target species that we catch as well, and we need to do something about it. And they identified the problems themselves. For example, fishers were talking about where their bottom trawlers would come really near shore and actually, you know, um, damage the whole habitat and little fish and fingerlings and eggs and that's why you do not have fish the next year and bottom trawling is one of the biggest problems of fisheries we as we know like globally right um and and then they were talking about their social barriers to be able to adhere to um to a conservation so for example as an example we took the live release of sawfish that well we want you to release a sawfish alive if they're being by caught in your net and many of the fishers said, well, we could do it. But then again, who would um, make sure that we are not facing other problems? For example, we do not own the boat or net, and it is an ex expensive fish. And if I release it, who I might lose my job. Who is going to give me a job back? Nice. And then this species cost $40 a kg in Bangladesh, and their monthly income is from 100 to $200, monthly income. I mean, how to offset that? How, how do you offset something like that, that you are asking them to lose their livelihood on something without an incentive incentive that would offset that problem? Not only livelihoods and, and these power hierarchies and stuff like that, they also do not have um, access to technical measures of a bycatch um, reduction. For example, if you need a net, which is, um, which is I don't know, um, uh, if I may say, species friendly, wouldn't wouldn't catch, um, catch as much bycott species as it as it is doing right now. They do not have it in the market. Where where do we get that? You know, get that. So for us as policymakers, it's extremely easy to say, well, um, for the betterment of the species, we are going to ban this sort of uh, fishing. 
But then there are a few thousand fishers who are depending on these fishes but doing nothing about it. So all these kinds of barriers at the end of the day doesn't help the species, also doesn't help the fishers either. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just a few examples of so many different types of barriers a person has to go through before even be able to decide that I'm going to adhere to something like a conservation rule. And, and we, as, as a community, um, unable to be able to you know acknowledge and help it or facilitate these things, it do, it's not really helping the species either. Yeah, I think that's one of the one of the most common well not questions, but one of the most common comments that we see either coming through Save Our Seas or for the podcast specifically is that we know that overfishing is the biggest driver of shark and ray declines across the world. And people's answer to that is okay, well why why don't we just ban shark fishing? Um but there's so many layers and it's so complicated and it's often not down to a fish's like individual choice it's not as easy for them to sort of say okay well i'm just i'm just not going to do it anymore then um nadia how about how about you have what have you found because i know that you found that the the local community have sort of or some of the local community at least have sort of turned to conservation a bit more and they're starting to sort of look at that as a more viable uh, or uh, an option that they're sort of exploring a bit more um, but I just wondered, like with the with the fishers as well, is are, are you finding similar barriers to them getting involved in conservation, or is it you know is it a different a different story for for where you work and the people that you work with? Yeah, I think um, that it's kind of a different story because well, it's kind of the same but a little bit different. So the way this project on Holbosch Island started is we were working with a very very elder community. Um, that some of them had kind of stopped fishing where they were fishing very little and the youngest elder community members were also turning into ecotourism uh, for whale shark uh, tours, whale shark swimming tours. And so it was this uh, generation that we started studying that was kind of um, going away from fishing, right? So it's it was not this very active, younger generation into fishing. And so I think that's why it was also easier for us to bond with this elder fisherman community because they were in not really a conflict of regulations or, or other things. So it was more of this historical part of things. And for the case of the younger fishermen that we wanted to interview, we had a really hard time with it. They didn't want it to be interviewed. We had to modify the interview to like a more short, con uh, precise, uh, uh, less, much more less talkative interview. And we also collaborated with some local people that have been working with uh, younger fishermen and had information of their fishing activities because it was just, they were not willing to talk at all. I mean, they were, it was hard. And then these elder community, we had all this past information, right? So, so that's it. And I think um, people got aware, they were aware of these, uh, of the decline in the catches and they were aware that all these human migration happening to the island, also related to tourism, was going to change the economy and they were going to need to find new avenues for their survival, for their uh, socioeconomic ways have, how to change. And tourism was, was a way of doing that. And um, 
I think um, most of the younger generations are now into tourism. There's this also this big problem. So um, the communal land on the island has been mostly sold to private investors. And so locals are kind of disappearing on the island. They're kind of moving away and they are renting it at a very high price or they have just sold their communal land. So everything is changing and there is fisheries happening on the region, but it has just changed. It's, um, um, it's, I don't think it's like Bangladesh where it's like intensive uh, fishing and, and it's kind of different, even though fishing is happening. It's kind of a different story that of, of this evolution in the behavior from being a fisherman to being a tourism stakeholder and from um from from diversifying the, the economy yeah so so it's a very it's kind of a different but kind of similar story in terms of the coastal exploitation in terms of species that were there that are gone and in our research we also use a lot of the the traditional knowledge we also turn it into geospatial information and that helped us a lot so that gave also a lot of robustness to the whole story of uh, the presence of species in the region which is which is really cool and i think this is a perfect place to sort of say this is exactly why we need this kind of science because there's there is no size one size fits all even within the same country or within the same region there's lots and lots of different context is 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 super important and you know to go back to a point that we made earlier um you know everything needs to be culturally socially politically appropriate to that area else it's just not going to work and the only way that we find that out is to speak to the people who are who are on the ground and this is kind of like the the one to sort of bring it all around um and and sort of finish off the podcast but something that i hear a lot now is empowerment of local communities and you know bottom up approaches which are fantastic but something that you've said alifa before and Nadia, you also touched on as well, is the importance of true empowerment. And I wondered if we could just round the podcast off by talking about what we mean by that. I mean, it's such a tricky question because I am also trying to wrap my head around this whole idea of what do we mean by when we say that we are going to empower some someone. And this statement by itself would give you an idea that you are forcing some sort of a power, right? When I say that I will be able to empower you, it right away takes away your power of your ability of doing something. And that's extremely problematic to me. Um, all the community works, not all, well, most of the community works and, and a lot of the awareness campaigns, if you look at the pictures and if you are present in one, you would see that there are a few people sitting in a high chair and then are a lot of the chairs somewhere in the room and these people in the high chair are talking about what they think is important what they think is important for the people who are sitting you know in front and they are saying that we are going to help you to achieve those things and that's not empowerment that's um trying to um trying to um, mainstream your idea of a good or better conservation or a better um, community or something. And that's problematic because that takes away the power of the people who are sitting right, right next to you. So when I say that um, empowerment is important and that's important for everyone, it's not just this communities or anything. Um, 
and how does empowerment comes it comes from self awareness and that your there is an opportunity for you to be able to represent yourself that's empowerment and that can come from representing this group from a representative that comes from their um community not me i haven't been part of this community i don't know their day to day lives no matter how many interviews how many conversations i do even i am not a good representative of this community it has to be these people and that's why i kind of think that it's extremely important to to acknowledge the importance of customary organizations for example a fishery cooperative and not just by you know making a cooperative but giving them a seat at the table where you are taking the decisions so for example when you um make a policy or, or pass a bill it's about the po- politicians are there bureaucrats are there sometimes researchers not always are there but you wouldn't see like a community member being there you wouldn't see um groups of people from different stakeholder levels in being there being able to say that hey this is not going to help we want it differently or um how are you going to solve the problem that it's going to raise are there plans for this so by empowerment i simply understand that these people have to have a seat in the table where these debates and conversations are happening yeah. yes that's such a good point it's kind of it's it's a conversation between people who are on an equal playing field and and nadia how about you what would your answer be to that question so So when I when I read like true empowerment and it made me want to think like outside of of like just as as humans as as community and I think true empowerment can come to us with empathy which is is something that we're losing globally and and then when you have empathy uh, of your surroundings of the people that are there no matter if they are in the coastal area or in the city is um is when you can generate this uh, empowerment right you are you are acknowledging the different uh life of someone else or their different way of living or their different uh culture and i believe we are not doing that uh for example with the fishing community and when when um going back to what uh Alifa said regarding having a seat at the table um still like m- many fishermen would tell me we are isolated we are not considered in the system them being isolated and not having more of a formal education limits their their decision making process because they do not have the information right and and so Um, this is not empowering them this is what alifa just mentioned is like we are going to tell you what we think is good for you and that's not but i do think um i do think uh, that things are changing slowly right because we are going into interdisciplinary work because we are uh, we are in this empowerment era of coastal communities and and all that i mean i mean just to say it, but real time is another thing right but but there is there is this huge challenge of of this integration of people into into the table as into into having the, a space right and into really willing to understand their needs that's the whole point it's like are we really willing to understand these needs because internationally the big governments the big organizations yes we we have all this idea of decentralization we have all these laws is all this really 
coming down to reality, to the day-to-day -day village, to the day-to-day -to -day town. I don't think it's coming down. This is not about overfishing and the fishers and the boat. No, no, no. This is about who's managing them, who are, who are the buyers, who are the sellers, who are like, this is a whole, um, a global scale education that we need. It's not only about the fishers and we need to raise awareness on these, on the community, on our cities, on, on our countries. I mean, um, I think the tools are there. I think their policy tools are there. Um, there, there needs to be funding, yes, but if funding is not coming from the government, then we need to make the change. People, we are 8 billion people. We need natural resources. How are we going to make the change? And how are we going to make, and how are we going to feel empathy for what's going on? That's it. That was such a beautiful answer. And yeah, and, and like you said, as like you've both said as well, this thing, I think the reason why there's a lot of kind of avoidance and fear around this kind of topic is because it takes a long time because it is complicated because it is messy because you're dealing with humans who are famously not logical and act on emotion and all of this stuff is all tied into it and you've got to disentangle that but I think that's a really beautiful point to sort of end our conversation on is that basically we just need to treat more situations with empathy and you know for the people who are very much at the center of what you quite rightly said is a more global issue that we we all have a role in it has been such a joy to hear you both talk about your experiences and your knowledge um i could honestly i could keep you all day <laughs> we could talk about this all day and i'm sure next time we meet we will um, but I, I do have one final question for you and it is if you could be any species of shark or ray in the world what would you be and why and Alifa I know I've I've put you on the spot with this question before you don't have to have the same answer I think I'm gonna stick to the sawfish I'm sorry I'm so biased I think the world can use another sawfish, um, of course, another another individual. But then again, it's just, I'm just so keen and, and all my work, everything that I do started with seeing that rostrum. So it's, yeah, I can't, I can't believe that I could be anything else. Yeah. And who doesn't want a saw for a nose? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh my God. How cool, cool that would be. <laughs> it's very cool. And you get to live in some of the most beautiful places in the world. So why That's not that I I, I, I fully I'm fully behind shark. that like the <laughs> and Nadia how about you what, been, what species of shark or ray would you be or skate we have a, a new project going on and it's as if people are not really interested in them right they're like medium size they're not big not small they kind of can go in the shade of it but they're a real shark but not like it's just this intermediate thing and 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 i'm a, sometimes i'm a bit shy so i think i would go like unnoticed being <laughs> being like and then i could still be in the ocean and do my thing but not not like a big uh hammerhead or or a bull shark or something <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't want to be too known so i i would just be part of them yeah yeah you can fly under the radar if you yeah, want to yeah 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 that's that's the point and then yeah, of course yeah. there's those there's i think is it is it black tips they all like cuddle together like in little yeah. holes in the reef which i think is absolutely <laughs> adorable <laughs> 
anyway, <laughs> anyway, I, I don't want to keep you any longer just because I'm, I'm aware that I'm taking up your time, even though, as I said, I could have this conversation for for ages and there is so much stuff that you have both said that I wish I could go in and ask you about and, and things but we will end it there for now and maybe when we all go on our trip to uh to Bangladesh or Mexico we can we can carry on this conversation <laughs> oh please you both should come you know we should plan something <laughs> we should, you should go to, we should all go to Bangladesh and then you should all come here to to the Mexican Caribbean islands right <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by the save our seas foundation it was hosted and edited by me isla hodgson our beautiful artwork is by nicola poulos and the wonderful jingle that you can hear right now is by david knight a enormous thank you to nadia and alifa for coming onto our podcast and sharing your experiences and your stories from the field. I learned so much from you. If you would like to follow their work, there will be links to everything that they do, all of their social media in our show notes as always. And I would highly recommend that you follow them and follow what they're getting up to because their research is so fascinating. And I, for one, can't wait to see what they do next. And thank you at home for listening. We always love to hear from you. So if you would like to get in touch, you can do so by emailing isla at saveourseas.com or you can get in touch on social media. We are at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram and at Save Our Seas on Twitter. If you have any topics you would like us to cover in season four, please do get in touch and let us know. This podcast is for you, for all of you shark nerds out there. So we want to make sure that we're covering everything that you want us to. And this will be the last episode before Christmas. So as I said at the beginning, wherever you are in the world, I really hope that you are enjoying the holidays, however it is that you celebrate it. And most importantly, getting some well-deserved rest and relaxation. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.